We continue our series on Left Behind No More. And you're wondering, maybe, when are we going to leave this series behind? (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. We'll finish you up here in a couple weeks. But uh, we've been talking about the end times, current events, and what Jesus said to his disciples when they ask, when's all this going to get better? When's the end coming? When is your kingdom going to reign upon this earth? And so he stepped into a discourse that's recorded uh, as the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, and uh, he spoke into their lives concerning the signs they were to watch for, but then he began to speak into their lives concerning what they needed to do in light of the end times, which was coming and in one sense was at hand. So we took up last week the first of three parables, three parables that Jesus then segues into after he's discussed some of the signs to look for and things to be mindful of. And we said that he took these three parables and he instructs the disciples to keep watch and be ready. To keep watch and be ready. Have you ever been assigned that task to keep watch and be ready about something and then you messed up and it happened on your watch? has happened to me time and time again. It's like, oh, that was my responsibility. I was supposed to be looking for that. I'm the one with the big L on my forehead. I'm the loser, right? Well, I tell you what, this is a pretty big deal to keep watch and be ready for the Lord's return. And Jesus spoke a stern warning into their lives concerning what they needed to be doing. Last week, we looked at the parable of the household and the household servant and the master in Matthew 24 verse 45 through 51. And we summed it up this way last week when we concluded. Keep watch and be ready by building up and exhorting one another to believe and obey the word of God. If you are keeping watch for the Lord's return, then you're standing on that train station ramp, as we mentioned last week, and you are waiting for the train to roll in. But you are dressed in holiness And your righteousness that comes from God himself, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have his righteousness in your life. But you never know when it's going to happen, but you're going to keep watch. And then with the parable of the household servant, he was instructed to feed the uh, servants that were around him. And so he referenced that as being mindful to exhort one another to believe and obey the word of God. And today, we move from that parable to the parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom in Matthew 25. Now, always, uh, I'm mindful that in Scripture, there's these breaks that are called chapters. You just need to understand, though, we start a new chapter with chapter 25. It wasn't like Jesus dismissed the disciples and said, come back for next week's session. All right? This is a continuation of of the disciples wanting to know when the end would come and all the things that Jesus predicted uh, that would start to be the signs, the birth pains of the end. And so he stepped into the parable of the household servant. Then he steps into this parable of the ten virgins. And so I want us to look at this parable and realize that it basically is a very straightforward parable for us to look at. Parables, a lot of times, parables is the word for stories. Jesus was a master storyteller. In fact, I look forward to the day of just sitting at his feet as surely as we sat in his 
presence spiritually today and just have Jesus tell the stories. And so he was a master communicator. He used stories, and he used this parable here to just simply declare a straightforward message he wanted them to know. Now, you can take this parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom, and you can look at it from different ways. Some people look at it very allegorically. Other people are sort of devotionalists, and they try to peel apart. You know, every little part of the parable has something to say into it or something to reference. You know, and some people are sort of mathematicians, and they get into what's the ten here and where were they then, that, so on and so forth. Well, you have to really be careful with the master storyteller. The master storyteller doesn't take his parables and you know, preach 10 messages with every different point pointing to something in the parable. He has one primary thought that he wants to bring about to set before your consciousness and say, deal with this reality. And so here's Jesus talking about the end times, current events, and he says, listen to me. Let me tell you this story about the 10 virgins and the bridegroom. And we need to get out of this story the one key thing he wants us to know by the time we finish it. So we're going to look at the backdrop of this, which is the wedding. We're going to look at the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids, as they're referred to sometimes. We're going to look at the bridegroom, and then we're going to look at the warning that he gives. The warning that he gives. But first, I want to go to the book of Revelation. Because you need to know as a backdrop in many ways, the articulation of our relationship with Jesus Christ or the potential for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead is oftentimes cast in the light of a wedding or a marriage. And so in Revelation, we find these words. In Revelation 19, the Apostle John, later years, he's in the midst of not a trance necessarily, but a vision, whether it was a physical vision that he was transported to or one he saw in the spiritual realm. And in this vision, he begins to unload realities. I believe these are realities in the transcendent world that you and I will one day be able to experience, especially if we are followers of God. It says this in Revelation 19.5, And from the throne came a voice that said, so he's seeing the throne, the throne of God and all these things, praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like, and he's not quite sure what it is, what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or, well, or maybe it was the roar of a mighty ocean waves, or maybe it was the crash of loud thunder. Whatever it was, in that vision, he heard this, this loud volume expression. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And it goes on and it says this. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to Him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words that come from God. These are the true words that come from God. There is a day ordained for you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to have a seat 
at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The Lamb referencing Jesus Christ because he sacrificed his life for us and for our sins. Just like in the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice lambs. So he's referred to as the lamb who was slain. In fact, it was in one of our songs today, referencing the the blood of the lamb. So that picture is a picture of Christ. And here is this wedding feast. And Christ is the bridegroom. And the bride is the joint group of followers of Jesus throughout all history called the church. And there is this incredible uniting together of the bride and the bridegroom in a physical um, presence kind of manner. We are spiritually connected with God through these days. But one of these days, there will be this marriage supper or marriage feast of the Lamb. We've talked about Jesus coming and putting boots on the ground when he establishes his millennial reign. And I don't quite understand all the the timing of it here and there or where this will happen or that will happen. But you need to know this. There is a physical presence you will find yourself in on that day. And it's going to be one huge party. Last week, uh, my wife and I were invited to a special lunch that was um, in in the... um, in the vineyards, and we uh, sort of didn't know quite what to expect, but it was a beautiful setting in a uh, sort of canopied kind of cove area, and the food was great. It was sort of different. It was like an organic meal, and I was like, what am I up for here on this, you know, farm boy from the Midwest? But it was a great meal, great conversation, meeting some people, and I sat there and thought, you know, this is just relax, Bowman enjoy that because the meal took a long time to play its way out. It was one of those you stay in one small, you know, element here, one element there. And, you know, you're always rushing to the next thing. And it's like, you know, you can just sit and enjoy this beautiful outdoor uh, environment and wine country and the food and the fellowship and what's going on. And you thought, I thought, you know, and they had some Simon and Garfunkel, right? Was that what the guys were playing? You know, some good music from my past kind of thing, you know. And I thought, you know, I don't know what the wedding feast of the Lamb will be like. But it's going to be a rich, rich experience. And the thing that was missing, of course, from the luncheon last week, it wasn't a wedding reception. There was no bride and groom. But on the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus will come and He will appear. And I think some of the songs we even sing in worship. Lord, I need You. Oh, I need You. Your presence. We're going to say, Lord, I do need You. And by golly, You're here. I'm here. And this is a living experience that we longed for. There is a destiny on your part, if you are a follower of Jesus, to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it will be rich. Be rich. Why is this analogy used? Well, for one, the wedding celebration was the biggest celebration that was known in the culture at that time. And so it would only be logical that you would reference the greatest kind of experience you could have in being married to Christ and living with Christ eternally in his, his millennial kingdom and, and beyond is something that could be at least a wedding feast and something greater. 
And so Jesus would take this analogy, and because he desires to have an intimate relationship with you and I, he puts it in the confines of the bride and the bridegroom experience. We cannot articulate the depth and the richness and the awesomeness of what all that will entail. And so different analogies are throwing up to try to give us a little bit of a taste. And so here Jesus tells a story about a wedding, about a wedding feast, about ten bridesmaids, and about the bridegroom. And it's almost like he's prodding them on a little bit. You need to know this. The end is coming. The signs will be at hand. But you need to understand something. And he's going to position to them a primary warning of what they need to be mindful about. And so with that, and Jesus intently talking to them on the Mount of Olives, trying to explain this to them, I want to just read the parable to you that Jesus spoke to them as he sort of leaned into their eyes. This is Jesus, right? God created the universe. He knows from which he came, and he longs to go back there and take them to be with him, and he longs to establish his eternal reign. So he knows reality. And here these are broken human followers who haven't put it all together because they don't know what his destiny is going to be on the cross. He leans into them and he tells them this story. You know, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was long. He was a long time in coming, and and they all became drowsy, and they fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our, Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But when they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. In a Jewish wedding, if you were to walk into an Israeli town, you would understand when it came to someone getting hitched to someone else, that there were three components. There was the engagement, and that, believe it or not, is different than what we know of engagement. Today you find a young man or young woman or a man or woman trying to figure out, you know, hey, should we get married? And so the questions popped, you know. I could take you back to when I popped the question to my beautiful bride, Melissa. It was at Central Park. It was sort of spontaneous. Hadn't seen each other or talked to each other for six months. We had one of those on-again, off-again relationships, yes. We learned a lot during those times. But the timing was right. The Lord's presence was there. Took a blade of grass. Made a circle of it. 
put it on her finger, and I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. I am so thankful for that day, huh? But in those times, it wasn't the guy and the girl just sort of making the decision, however it may be. It was the dads. The dad of the girl and the dad of the guy, they sort of got together. They observed their children being uh, raised and growing up. And so they got together and they established the idea of an engagement. And so they were engaged. And then they established a time for a ceremony to come. And that ceremony to come was the second thing, and that was the betrothal. All right? Now, we're unfamiliar with that word. But the betrothal was the actual ceremony part where uh, I suppose there had been vows. There was no big heyday about it or whatever. You know, you're there. And um, you commit to one another that you will live together in marriage for the rest of your life. All right? So the guy and the gal... They exchange this commitment to one another in the betrothal, and at that moment is as if they are married. But they do not consummate the marriage, and they do not live together. Now, we think, well, isn't that sort of like what the engagement's supposed to be today? I'm telling you, it's a change of culture. There was the engagement done by the dads, and then there was the betrothal when they come together and they establish that they are going to be married. And for all rhyme and reason, it's legal. In fact, you may recall, Mary and Joseph were betrothed to one another. It was as if they were married, but they had not consummated, had physical relationships. They weren't living together. So when Mary became pregnant as a virgin with Jesus, the Son of God, everybody was aghast. (gasps) How can that be? Because they were supposed to be. And and Joseph contemplated divorcing her. Why can you divorce her? You're not really married fully, right? Well, no, in that culture, you were really married. The betrothal happened. But the guy went away, and the guy had to go and in one sense, prove himself or prepare for his bride. And sometimes it could be up to a year after the betrothal ceremony until they actually came to the third part, which was the wedding itself or the wedding feast. Now, it's pretty good that they had the betrothal. In fact, sometimes I think today that might be a good thing to reinstitute. All right? First of all, the whole thing of, of parents being involved, that's like, I don't want that. I would think that same kind of thing. But parents would have wisdom in who would be a good fit one with another. Should it not be, you know, some type of encouragement in that world? And the betrothal period, this, this thing of you are committed, you really are going to be married. But then the guy has to go and make preparations to make sure that he can, pre, can, that he can care for the bride and take care of her. So he may go away and he may work diligently. He may uh, uh, have to add an addition onto his father's house or maybe buy some property, build his own house. But this period of time between the betrothal and the wedding feast was there for the sake of preparing to faithfully take care of the new bride. All right. And so these three elements play their way out. These three phases, the engagement, the betrothal, and then what's referred to as the wedding feast. And then when the time is right, the bridegroom goes to get the bride and all of her attendants and the family. And there's one big parade and celebration as they go back to where the bridegroom had prepared a place for their family to begin. And that was the party. In fact, that party sometimes would last up to seven days. How about that for a reception, huh? 
come, let's party. And they would celebrate. And at the end of that celebration time was usually the best man. He would take the hand of the bride and the hand of the bridegroom, put it together and say, blessings on you. And everyone would leave and they would consummate the marriage and begin living their life together. Okay? So, this story of Jesus, they all know that. That's the backdrop to their culture, right? Phase three is where this story, the parable, the ten virgins, takes place. It's in phase three. Now, I want us to realize... I, it's one of those things where I just want to pick Jesus' mind. Jesus, I, I, when you're telling this story, <laughs> when you're telling this story, you're thinking of other stuff, other realities that we know not of. Could you let me in on some of the secret of what's going on? Because the reality is, we are between phase two and phase three. Jesus has not come yet. But Jesus has gone away. To do what? To prepare a place for us. In fact, he told his disciples that in John 14. He said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He probably added on some rooms for you. And for you and for your family. And for your extended family. If it were not so, hey, I would have told you. I wouldn't be leading you on. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what? I am going to come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. We referenced this a few weeks ago about how the love of Jesus is there so much. He wants us to be in his presence, that we are with him. That when you take this passage and put it in the context of the wedding that we just described, isn't that an incredible picture? Where's the bridegroom? Doggone it. Why doesn't Jesus just show up and tell me what I need to do right now? God seems so far from me these days. I don't know where he's at. I'd like to know God. Is he around? We have that because the bridegroom is away. He's not physically in our presence. But he has gone to prepare for you and I a place. And he will consummate this thing. And he will bring you back to be where he is. And so shall you live and reign with him forever. Can you imagine the, the bride and the bridegroom during those, those times when they had that? I, that would be just awful in one sense. You've already committed to one another, right? But you can't consummate the right. You don't know how long the guy's going to take. Maybe he's really slow at the carpentry thing. And you're like, my goodness, get the house built or something, right? Or, you know, get, get some money for the dowry or whatever. He has to work in the field, you know, hurry up, buddy. And I don't know how, you know, they saw one another, but they stayed pure in it. And you're like, wow, that would be like, that would be really, really hard. Because, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't like just tell the guy, you know, hey, I found somebody else. Because you didn't. You can't. You're married that would be a divorce but you're waiting and waiting and waiting are you anxious in your relationship with jesus do you desire for all wrongs to be made right desire for him to wipe away every tear from your eye you're in the betrothal period but he's coming and he's preparing a place 
is going to blow you away. He's coming back, and you get to go be where he is, and you get to see it all, and this is for you. We live in his presence, united with him, in intimacy, to reign with him, to rule with him. This is truth. This isn't a nice little story that the pastor's telling you this morning. Jesus told this story about the virgins and the bridegroom because he understood the backdrop of what a grander story, the epic of all times is that's going on. I am endeared to the idea of the bride and the bridegroom, even though as part of the bride, the church of Christ, uh, I'm a male person, so I don't really reflect on weddings that way. But, you know, I am endeared to this idea of being united with the one that I worship and serve and that we sang and we worship this morning. Majesty, majesty is the great one. So hang on. Don't get discouraged. Don't get down. You might say, I made a commitment to Jesus somewhere, but it doesn't seem like that we're committed that much anymore, maybe. There'll be ups and downs for sure. But know this, he is committed to you because he promised that even though he's away and has not yet returned. So here the disciples are leaning into Jesus as he's, as he's telling this story and he's articulating it to them. I'm sure that they were um, trying to figure out exactly all that he was saying when they were just simply wanting a simple answer to their question. When are you coming back? You know, When's the kingdom going to come? So he tells them this story. There's one prominent thing in the parables of Jesus, but there's always these shadows of things that he's giving reference to in them at times. So he looks at the wedding. I want to look at the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. All right? In some uh, translations, it calls them the ten maids. All right? This is the wedding party. Now, it's interesting in the story, Jesus does not talk about the bride per se. But you don't need to really run after that little tangent and try to figure that out because what he's saying is, as part of the wedding party, the bride and everybody, that's part of the, prepared for the bridegroom. In fact, in the weddings in, in that day, the big deal wasn't the bride, all right? The big deal was the bridegroom, all right? Now, that'd be really disappointing to some of your brides, right? Whenever I do premarital counseling or we start talking about the wedding ceremony itself, I just tell them there's two important people. The most important person is the bride. And the second most important person is the bride's wife. I mean, the bride's mom, right? So I just tell the guy, whatever she wants, whatever the bride wants, just start leaning that direction. That you'll be, you'll be said good. And you need to know this, that the bride's mom, she's number two, all right? But in that day, it wasn't the bride. It was the bridegroom that was the big deal, all right? So this story has the bridegroom. It has the maids or the, uh, the wedding party, but that's representative of the church, the followers of God, or those who are uh, proposed followers of God. And so we find that the ten are there. Now with the ten, it says in verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were wise. So we have ten. All ten sort of look alike. We can define the ten as professed Christians, professed people who profess that they are a part of the wedding party. All right? They all pretty much look the same. But somehow in this division, there's a separation between the wise and the foolish. Now, ten's an interesting number. Ten's used at different places throughout 
Hebrew and Jewish culture, it sort of seems to be the perfect number. And apparently 10 was like the right number of bridesmaids to have at this wedding. And so there were 10, and uh, they had heard rumors on the street. The guy was getting done with his deal, and so they were all showing up. They showed up at the bride's house, right? And they're waiting on the bridegroom. And as they're waiting, they're contemplating what the party's going to be like and everything else that's going on. And um, they uh, all, you know, if you walked in, you couldn't distinguish one from the another. God seemingly knew the wise from the foolish. They all said that they knew the bride. They all said that they had uh, made preparations of their own. They all said that they were anticipating the coming of the bridegroom. All right, they're sort of all on the same page. In fact, you could not distinguish them if you walked into that very room. Except that, verse 3, the foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. The oil represents, in many ways, it can go different directions, but if indeed the bride's maids represent those who are professed Christians, the oil in one sense profess is the actual saving grace through the power of the Holy Spirit that enables them to be truly a part of the wedding party. And so the oil here is representative of preparedness for the wedding celebration, the wedding feast. Did they have it or did they not? They thought they did. And what happens, the bridegroom's away for a long time. And I think this is to some degree, um, Jesus subtly sort of trying to poke at his disciples to let them know that what they were expecting wasn't really going to happen right away, maybe as they had thought, that it was going to be some time off. And we live here 2,000 years later after Christ. And I could take you back through every season and generation of people who thought Jesus was going to come at that time, but he didn't come. And here we are seated in a room like today, worshiping Jesus who isn't here physically in presence going, hello, where's he at? Now, for those of us who are part of the wedding party and we anticipate his coming and we believe that's no big deal in one sense. We know he'll be faithful. But for outside people, and maybe you're one of those people today, and you're sort of doubting this whole thing of Jesus coming back, you would start to scoff a little bit and go, where is he? Come on, be real. Do you know this was articulated clearly in Scripture by Peter himself? In Second Peter 3, verse 3, it says this, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Two thousand years? Just been a couple days. There'll be scoffers. But it'll surely happen. And here's Jesus in the midst of this story, sort of forewarning his disciples a little bit. You know, the bridegroom's going to be off and coming. Now, what happens to the bridesmaids? The bridesmaids, they fall asleep. They just zonk out. All right? Sort of getting late in the evening. They're waiting where he's coming, so they go to sleep. Now, in the story, going to sleep is not condemned. Why? Because you need to know this. 
Waiting does not mean that you're bright-eyed, bushy-tail, up every hour of every day, looking towards the eastern sky on top of a mountain, waiting for Jesus to come. All right? Life goes on. We have responsibilities. Sleeping is one of those. Eating is one of those. Work and preparations, taking care of our families, one of those. Some ambitions God gives you to create and make things happen. That's all part of it. So to, be, uh, to watch and be ready, Jesus is not telling you to be a weird person. Okay? Go about life, though, with a subtle disposition, knowing that today could be the day. This could be the year. It could be in my generation. It could not be in my generation. But I know that the bridegroom is going to come back and he is going to consummate and bring together the physical nature of the whole kingdom he's promised. And so you're watching and you're ready, but it doesn't mean that you're a weird person that's over the top. So don't be lazy. Get your work done. And if you go to sleep, go to sleep. Now here's the situation, though. When you go to sleep, Some of them went to sleep with a clear understanding that they were prepared. Others went to sleep, maybe thinking they were prepared, but they were foolish because they really weren't prepared. I came across the story this week of an old farmhand that showed up at a guy's farm, and he sort of did an interview with him. And in the interview with the gentleman who owned the farm, the farmhand, Sandy, he says, Well, I just want you to know, sir, that when the wind blows, I can sleep. The guy didn't think much of it. He just passed on. He went ahead and hired him. The guy was a pretty decent worker. One big storm starts coming in. And the owner and his wife, they get up, a little rattled, concerned. Is everything taken care of? And uh, they went out and they, they checked the barn doors. The barn doors were closed. Things were put away. Stuff that needed to be buttoned down was buttoned down. And they went and they found the farmhand. And there he was, sleeping. I can sleep when the wind blows. Why? Because he was prepared for the storm that came in. So also for these people that were sleeping in the night. Some naively thought they were prepared. Others, they knew they were prepared. So as we're living life between the betrothal and the wedding feast, have rest and have a donut. (laughs) I love my son. I just do. Go on about your life. But you need to be very mindful of this preparedness factor. And their preparedness is identified with the oil. And the oil is the saving grace through the Holy Spirit that you are truly going to be a part of that party. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm always anxious when I was always anxious when I was a student with teachers who said there could be a pop quiz any day. Didn't you hate that? You need to have read this chapter, this chapter, and that Pop quiz. Some of you can still identify with that, especially if you're in school. I'm actually going to take a class this week up in Pasadena. And uh, I'm supposed to have so much read before I get there. And there's, okay, okay, am I prepared to go take the class or not, right? You know, not that there's going to be a pop quiz in this uh, graduate class, but there's, you know, there's just this sense of going, okay, am I prepared? Remember that taste when you walked into the classroom and you weren't prepared for the pop quiz that day, you were so anxious inside. And then the teacher would say, 
Pull out a blank piece of paper, number it to five. Oh, great. Sometimes I think of that with this whole preparedness thing. And that's really starts to get to the heart of what this story is about. Jesus is wanting to know if there's preparedness that's going on in your soul and my soul concerning that final day. Concerning that final day, are you and I prepared or are we an unprepared bunch that could actually be classified as fools? We go on. And it says this now as we start to look at the bridegroom. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The bridegroom came late. It was late at midnight. It says that when he came. And the reason it was late at midnight is because uh, they um, like to have the celebrations through the town. Aren't cities more cool when it's nighttime and there's all kinds of lights? And so they intentionally would have the bridegroom come late at night sometimes so that they could parade through the town on the way to the new home that was prepared. And the oil is symbolic of the preparedness, the saving grace of the heart. But what literally was happening was they would get up and they would find that their torches, some of them had gone out. And, and actually the word here uh, is not lanterns, like you know, I, you know, it says earlier in, in Matthew, you know, hide your lamp under a bushel, no kind of thing, you know that song. It's not talking about a lamp. It's really the word that's used for torches, like the Romans used torches. And so it would be a long stick, and at the top of the stick would be sort of this wire mesh, and then you would stuff a rag inside the wire mesh, and then you would sort of pour oil, olive oil or something, then you would strike it and light it. So it was a torch and you carry, carry the torch around, right? It's a lot more cooler than a little lamp. You know, hey, I got my little lamp. It's a torch. And so they grabbed their torches and they head out and some of them were flickering, some of them were burning. And then what you would do is you would carry a flask of oil along with you because then when it, that, that their rag started to go dry, you'd pour some more oil on it. Whoosh, there it goes up again. That's how they would light things, right? And sort of the torch was like your invitation to get into the wedding feast. And so they, they awake and the bridegroom's now come and he's at hand and they're going, oh my goodness, where, where's my torch at? Because this is my ticket and we're going to go out we're going to go parade. And they start parading and they look around and they go, oh, my, my torch is going out. I don't have enough oil. Where's, where, I don't have a flask. And the ones that were prepared for the pop quiz, right? They were able to take that and they were able to put more oil on and they were carried off. But the others, they were sent away. Now, in this parable, it's not that the ones who had oil, the wise ones, are selfish. That's not a part of this at all. Because they, they were just prepared. The others aren't prepared. And the reality is you cannot borrow somebody else's oil when it comes to salvation. You cannot borrow saving grace from another person. My parents were Christians. I grew up in a church. My grandpa, he was a preacher. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter. Every person has to have the oil of their own. And so the oil was applied, and they moved that direction, and the ones that didn't have, they went out to try to get new oil. But where are you going to find new oil at to buy? At midnight, they can't find it. They come back, they knock on the door, and you move from the bridegroom to the fourth thing, which is the warning. And one of the sad, tragic, and it's one of the more grave kind of parables, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. 
this parable is about a warning. And the warning is your lack of preparedness for the day when the Lord comes or you pass from this life to the next. And that could be this week. You just do not know. Are you prepared? You can't have oil from somebody else. You have to have your own oil. You have to have the oil of saving grace. The provision was made. The story was told by a newscaster a number of years ago about a photographer who was also a skydiver. And the photographer had his camera going as each of the guys jumped out of the plane. They'd pull their cord, parachute would go up, and they would start to safely sail to the earth. And so they're showing this video. And when it goes one guy, next guy, next guy, and then the last guy goes, and then there's the ripcord, and it pops open. And then just a little while later, the camera just goes berserk all over the place. Well, come to find out, the photographer, who was a skydiver too, he was the last one who jumped. And when he jumped, he went to pull his ripcord, and he realized he had not put on his parachute. And he fell to his death. Can you comprehend that? True story. So you're thinking, well, what do you do in that moment? When the jump has been made, you don't swing by somebody else and say, hey, buddy, can I hang on with you and borrow your parachute? They're not going to give their parachute up. Their parachute's been for them. When we go to pull the ripcord, the question is, are you prepared with the saving grace of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the bridegroom whom you wait? Friends, you can't get into the numbers here, but it is significant. Jesus doesn't tell this story saying there's one or two who are foolish. He says there were five out of ten. So, basically, he's saying it's more common than not. You walk into a room full of bridesmaids, virgins. They got married when they were young. So, you you walk into a room and you can't distinguish them. But know this, it's more common than not that a significant number of people in that room will not be able to pull the ripcord because they've not put the parachute of God's saving grace on in their life. This is a sobering warning that he speaks into their life about how to be ready. So I sum it up this way. Keep watch and be ready. By procuring saving grace in advance through genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Next Sunday afternoon, we get to have a baptismal celebration of people who have the oil, people who put the parachute on, people who have prepared by inviting Christ into their life. And they're following God in the obedient step of baptism, being dunked into water, being brought out of water, symbolically dead to the old life, raised to a new life, because we are commanded to be baptized. In fact, it says this in Acts 2. After Peter had preached to them on the day of Pentecost, 
they were cut to the heart and they said, Peter, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And I always say, that's where your name's at in verse 39. It wasn't just for those on the day of Pentecost, but for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call through generations. And with many other words, what did he do? He warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We celebrate 13 people and maybe several more being baptized next Sunday afternoon. You will not want to miss the celebration. Plus you get ice cream. But listen, I wanted to title today's message, The Prepared Church but I couldn't get there. You know why? Because the emphasis in this story of Jesus isn't on the prepared ones as much as it is on the unprepared. And so I titled it The Unprepared Fools. This is a stern warning message. And as surely as Peter warned them that day, don't get mad at me. I'm just the servant. I have to be faithful to the word And it's there in Matthew 25. This is a warning. How do you know you'll be let in the door? There are a lot of pretenders. People that know the Bible. People that sing the songs. People that are involved deeply in church ministry. But I want you to know, God only knows And it comes down to the volitional choice of your heart. Have you surrendered to the leadership of Jesus Christ or have you not? Have you embraced his saving grace as a provision in your life? Or are you still just out there skirting with the idea and you've never fully surrendered? Friends, do not be called a fool. And when it comes to your friends and your relatives, and your neighbors. Do not glibly go along thinking that we all get in on the final wedding feast day. Only those who are prepared, who have oil to light their torches. We need to be diligent in sometimes giving a warning message to our friends. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask here this morning that we would take to heart if we've ever sincerely appropriated the saving grace from your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we know there's nothing we can do for our salvation. It's about what you have done. But we need to allow that to be appropriated to our life through sincere, volitional, willful commitment to let you be our Savior, to let you be our Lord. And I pray here even this morning, Lord, if there's any double-mindedness or uncertainty concerning if an individual or a set of people would be at the wedding feast or they'd be locked out, may they find their way to sincerely bending their knee before you and surrendering their all. Jesus, I pray that we would not be foolish in our preparations. And then, Lord, for our loved ones, may we be so bold in the right timing to let people know that they too 
need to appropriate the provision of God's saving grace. Otherwise, they are lost. Lord, may we as a church never lose sight of the dangerous warning message of the gospel. To not hold it over people's heads in a judgmental spirit because only you know. But Lord, may we be a church who wants to see people come awake spiritually, truly redeemed. And we know, God, sometimes there's going to be a persuasive element in our testimony as surely as you warned the disciples on the Mount of Olives that day concerning your coming. We do not want to be left behind. Amen. The ushers are going to come to receive uh, the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connection cards. But before you throw the connection card in there, I want you to seriously consider the idea that if you've never been publicly baptized, to take that obedience step next week. We'll be in touch with you. Just mark baptism on your card. I think there's something about a defining moment of baptism. Not that it saves you. It doesn't appropriate God's grace. It's an outward sign of that provision. But it's a declaration of your faith. Even if you've walked with Jesus for a number of years, I encourage you, if you've never been baptized, to be baptized next Sunday at 2 p.m. Mark that card. We'll be in touch with you. But let's stand and worship the Lord because he indeed is the coming, the coming king.